Hello, good evening and welcome to the Australian Centre for the Moving Image and to Gossip Girl here. Tonight we are live in the studio with an all-girl panel dissecting teen dramas. My name is Anna and I'm pleased to have with me this evening Rada O'Meara, Dr Sage Walton on the end and Mel Campbell in the middle. Um, you may have noticed an abundance of paper as you arrived. That's, that's my little first note of housekeeping. Uh, the, the little bits of paper, therefore, if you all of a sudden think of a question that you desperately would like to ask and know that you're going to uh, forget, um, or you perhaps would like to make comments and flirt with the panellists about, you know, how fantastic their pearls are, <laughs> what it, whatever takes your fancy. Uh, the second one is the um, really daggy feedback form that's really useful for us when we're making uh, the next live in the studio session to know um, what, what works for you, what shows you want to see. So go, go to town, go wild um, and tell us what you think. So that's also paper number two. Uh, we are recording the event, so when it comes to Q&A time, if you um, wave your hand in the air... Uh, one of us, Lynette or myself, will bring a microphone around to you. So maybe uh, if you can switch your mobile phones off to that is uh, dandy. Um, we'll also have a little uh, competition or uh, <laughs> act of <laughs> competitiveness. I blame you. <laughs> Did I hear gasping of excitement? <laughs> I did. Excellent. So first I'd like to introduce our number one speaker for the evening, Rada. Rada Umira is completing her PhD in screen studies at the University of Melbourne where she also teaches. She has published journal articles on soap, soap operas and superheroes. She has a, char a, ch I'm gonna say a, ca a character. She has a chapter in the recent book Screwball Television, Gilmore Girls, and a chapter in the forthcoming collection of the Future of Soap Opera. She worked in the curat curatorial department at the M Museum of Television and Radio, now the Paley Media Centre in New York City. Her favourite teen drama is Freaks and Geeks. Over to you, Rada. Thank you. So, um, <laughs> I've got a, um, a rather embarrassing beginning to my talk because I thought that I should start by declaring up front that my argument that I'm going to present here tonight is actually based on a fairly shaky premise <laughs> and that is my heartfelt belief that season three of Gossip Girl is brilliant. And, <laughs> I mean, there are so many highlights, come on. There's Chuck and Blair starting out with their Twisted Sex Games and Betrayal, ending up with Twisted Sex Games and Betrayal. There's Dorota and Vanya showing the Upper East Side how to do romance. <laughs> Serena's skirts getting shorter and shorter. Jenny's hair extensions becoming <laughs> increasingly absurd. There's the Tyra Banks cameo. <laughs> because that adds a whole new kind of humour to the show. And Chuck gets to, gets to declare I'm Chuck Bass about every five episodes. So I just love it. I can't see what you wouldn't like. Um, and one of the key reasons that I think season three really works is because it successfully negotiates the character's transition from school to college. 
And this is a development that is really often very problematic for teen television shows. It's a successful transition that I'm going to explore here, but this week I've um, become aware that perhaps not everybody thinks that um, season three is fabulous, and some people don't see this as a successful transition at all. It's been pointed out to me by one or two people. Um, so we'll get to discuss later on how we might evaluate the success of the show or particular seasons and get to hear what you guys think on that as well. Um, so whatever your opinion of season three, I hope that you'll at least find it interesting to consider how the show handles this precarious transition and how it does it differently to most other teen shows. So I'm approaching Gossip Girl through the context of genre. I see it very much in the tradition of teen television dramas like Beverly Hills 90210 and Dawson's Creek. The move to college is often a crisis point in teen dramas. It's a moment which is significant within the story world, it's culturally resonant with the audiences, and it's a game changer for how the story works formally. The transition to college is a big opportunity for change. Regular settings can change substantially, new characters can be introduced, old characters can easily be dispensed with. So shows tend to embrace this change enthusiastically or resistance staunchly. So before I address how um, Gossip Girl does this move to college, I'm just gonna outline first the important role that school plays in the first two seasons of Gossip Girl. The importance of school in teen television more generally is underpinned by a synchronicity between the American television season and the academic year. So that most series begin at the start of the school year and end at the commencement of summer holidays. So Gossip Girl and the OC are typical of this. The beginning of the television season means returning from the Hamptons for the first day of school and the end of television season means planning your summer backpacking around Europe. So this gives the impression that the school year structures the television season and it gives a rhythm to the lives of the characters. School is really central to the theme of teen television. And the central theme, as I see it, is how individuals negotiate their identity in relation to social groups. So our friends on the Upper East Side struggle to create an individual identity in relation to the social institutions of family and school. In Gossip Girl, the wealth of the families and the exclusivity of the schools accentuate these conventional themes. School and family represent social order in the world of teen TV, and Constance Billard's School for Girls and St Jude's School for Boys exemplify authority and the establishment. The teen characters typically struggle with school and family for both acceptance and for independence. Blair struggles to be queen of Constance. Lonely Boy struggles to get people to notice he exists. <laughs> Nate struggles to resist the future his family has mapped out for him. Chuck struggles for his father's approval. Jenny struggles for popularity, or perhaps she just struggles. <laughs> the endless infighting and the gossip about who is and who is not currently speaking to their BFF and where someone sits on the Met steps is the attempt by these teens to create their own social order. But these attempts remain embedded within the established social institutions of school and family. The social machinations of Constance are one of the key pleasures for the viewers. 
We can relate to the social dilemmas of how to work out where, where to fit in, but we can also laugh smugly at a world where the social cues seem so obvious and so superficial. So I'm going to put on a clip now um, that's from season two. It's the first day of school um, from the episode The X-Files, and um, it's a good example of the um, social machinations at Constance. Just between us, okay? Hey, you look great, sweetie. Excited for the big first day? Dad, how uh, set are you on this whole going to school thing? Pretty set. Why? The first day of school's draft day. Blair and her merry band of psychos are going to be on a terror. They categorize girls into two groups, projects and victims. Girls who have the potential to become little mini Blairites become projects, and total losers and the girls who have the potential to threaten social order become victims. I was a project last year, and we all know how that turned out. What? Nothing. I'm totally with you. Do you understand any of that? I'm so glad about a girl. Melissa Murphy, Jr. <laughs> Let's see here. AP score's good. Decent charity work. Young Women at the American Ballet Theater. Season passes to the next. My dad's the team doctor. Where did you say summer again? The Adirondacks. We'll be in touch. So you're basically using Blair's system to screen potential dates. Think of it as an early application process. So many slots in the chef ass social calendar. You saved me a ton of time. Seems a bit impersonal. Thank you. I those last season's Twitter flats. I got them on sale. Projects pile shrinks while the victims pile. I think the voucher system. The government doesn't even care. Last minute transfer. School and family are important institutions in the lives of these teens, and they're particularly intertwined in the world of Gossip Girl by the exclusivity of the aristocratic setting. This is reinforced by the episodic format in which the school friends and the families come together in each episode in the formal event of the week, where Law and Order has the perpetrator of the week and Buffy had the monster of the week, Gossip Girl has family brunches, charity galas, the kiss on the lips party, the white party and the polo match. These events give each episode a focus and a dramatic climax and they also reinforce the idea that school and the family social network are a single inescapable entity. School plays a central role in the first two seasons of Gossip Girl, so when the core characters graduate from high school, it has the potential to transform the show. Um, before I explore in a bit more detail how Gossip Girl handles this transition itself, I'm just going to sketch the generic conventions 
that are already established by previous teen dramas. I see two major trends for how teen dramas negotiate young characters' volatile transition from high school to college. This development in the story world is an opportunity for change in the tone and the texture of the show. So I basically categorise the two trends as resistant to change or embracing change. Most series seem to resist change. They practice a kind of harm minimisation strategy by incorporating college within the established setting. In this case, characters inevitably give up their Ivy League dreams and usually choose to continue living at home. For example, most of the main characters in Buffy the Vampire Slayer enrol at the local college UC Sunnydale. The characters in Beverly Hills 90210 all wind up at California University, which is coincidentally the same fictional college for the characters in Saved by the Bell the College Years. <laughs> the pitfall of this kind of scenario is that it can lack credibility. Sending all the characters to the same local college it often seems just a bit too neat. So, you know, did anybody really think that the token smart characters like Willow and Andrea would not go away to a really good college? So this transition from high school to college is intended to be a minimal change in the ongoing narrative and in hopefully the ongoing success of the series, but that doesn't actually always work out that way. Clearly Beverly Hills peaked at the end of high school. They went for the harm minimisation strategy, but I don't know that it actually worked. In fact, I'd like to pinpoint the peak of 90210 at a specific scene, which is the, <laughs> which is the street po protest for Donna Martin to graduate. <laughs> uh, I think the protest was brilliant, but let's face it, Donna was not destined for higher education. <laughs> By contrast, some teen dramas embrace the change. They use the move to college to motivate a major change in the whole direction of the show. They introduce a raft of new settings, new characters, relationships and storylines. Most notably, Dawson's Creek took the opportunity to make radical changes in the story and form of the series, sending major characters to opposite ends of the continent. Josh Schwartz's previous series, the series he did before Gossip Girl and Chuck, um, was the OC, and it followed this path of embracing change. For three seasons, the OC was very much like a Californian version of Gossip Girl. It followed a bunch of teens at an exclusive prep school. After the ratings dipped in season three and viewers complained that the show was becoming less humorous and overly melodramatic, the producers intentionally embraced change. In season four of the OC, the former residents of Newport Beach are scattered. Ryan studies architecture at UC Berkeley in Northern California, and Summer becomes a vegan at Brown. This model often adds a level of realism as the characters often attend actual universities. The problem with this solution is that the shows often lack a cohesion, the kind of cohesion that a stable kit of settings and characters provides. So in season four of the OC, Seth seems to just pop up wherever it's convenient in each episode. <laughs> Newport, Berkeley, Providence, just whatever's going on. However, the show's fourth season is really dominated more by the death of a major character, the troubled socialite Marissa Cooper, than by the transition to college. The dispersal of characters in season four makes it a really disjointed season and the focus on Marissa's death actually seems slightly out of place in the new settings when Summer's ruminating about 
Marissa when she's on in Providence. It, it somehow doesn't seem to fit so much. But on the upside, Marissa is dead. <laughs> <laughs> and Newport Beach is finally hit by an earthquake. Um, so Gossip Girl's transition from school to college is interesting because it seems to follow the path of teen dramas that evade change. But it's unusual because it avoids the pitfalls that are usually associated with that kind of model. So it seems that perhaps Josh Schwartz has learned a lesson from handling the transition of, to college so poorly in the OC. Gossip Girl's setting in Manhattan is central to its treatment of the transition. The major characters attend school on the Upper East Side and continue to college in Manhattan. This might appear like the convenient everyone goes to the local college solution, but New York City is a credible destination for teenagers. It's convincing that hipsters Dan and Vanessa would go to NYU. It's convincing that Nate would go to Columbia and it's convincing that Chuck would develop sites of commerce and debauchery in the city. Besides, the characters in Gossip Girl have repeat, repeatedly expressed their elitist opinion that they already live at the centre of the universe. Only Blair's attendance at NYU seems like a stretch. In the books, the, um, the teen novels on which the series is loosely based, she actually attended Yale. The show seems to acknowledge that this is a stretch. Blair refers to NYU as a glorified state school. But the storylines of Blair as a fish out of water in NYU are quite playful and they seem to counterbalance Dan's new status as the ultimate insider and suggest that college can offer new experiences even if that's only 70 blocks away. And Blair ends up at an Ivy League college anyway, as we all knew she would. So the characters' choices to stay in New York City generally seem credible and their attendance at real universities adds a touch of realism. Even better, the integration of characters and storylines through regular formal events can happily continue. We still get the family brunches, we still get the formal parties. The characters spout platitudes embracing the idea of moving on, of reinventing themselves, but the show largely minimises this change. I'm going to show a clip now from season three. It's, um, it's about two episodes in, it's The Freshman. Um, episode which is the um, college orientation and this is a scene of Blair reflecting on her experiences of college orientation. There's a reason we never went downtown. It's awful. The minute you cross 14th Street people forget there's a class system. The, you will find your place just from the top. No, I found my place and it's at the bottom. It's a point of pride now that I see who's on top. All turned out for the best. If I hadn't been so distracted, I would have been able to force you to go to Brown. That's sweet, but no, where you wouldn't have. I am sorry I pulled a disappearing act. I'm sure you'll find a way to make it up to me. In the handbag department at Bendel's. <laughs> now, normally I'd be more worried about Brown, but you actually seem a lot better than you have in a while. I really am. much easier when it was just about where we sat on the med steps. Yeah, but we've been here, done this. And I was so good at it. Well, then it's time for a new challenge for both of us. I'm glad you're not going to Brown. I need you here. Same. 
One of the major reasons that Gossip Girl survives the move to college is the stability offered by the adult generation. In teen dramas of the 80s and 90s, the adult characters were clearly secondary to the teens. They played minor and usually embarrassingly straight roles. Jim and Cindy Walsh still make my skin crawl, <laughs> and Dawson's dad was a Ken doll. <laughs> By contrast, the adults in Gossip Girl feature prominently throughout the first two seasons, and their roles and relationships are largely unchanged by the move to college. What makes Gossip Girl unique is its blurring of the roles between the teens and their parents. From the first episode, the teens indulge in drink, sex, drugs, with a complete disregard for legal age limits. They regular dress in, regularly dress in formal wear, they ride in limos and helicopters, they make business deals, they drink cocktails. Their money buys them a level of access and mobility in the world that's usually reserved for adults. And let's face it, the characters are played by adult actors anyway. So the differences between the teens and their parents in Gossip Girl is further blurred by the irresponsible behaviour of the adult generation. Lily Vanderwoodson's marriages don't seem to last any longer than her girlfriend, than her daughter's relationships. Um, Rufus's earnest romanticism is kind of naive. The captain makes his dopey son look like a beacon of morality. This blurring between adults and teens means that in Gossip Girl, going to college is not really so momentous. By painting the teens as permanently precocious and preserving the setting in New York City, Gossip Girl's third season allows the characters and stories to develop but without changing radically. The characters continue their struggles to forge individual identities as the university community effectively replaces the institutional role previously held by the schools. The show is formally consistent, it continues to deliver viewers pleasures that they expect and it makes the minor changes within the story quite credible. So I think all round that's a successful negotiation of a transition that's damaged many other teen dramas. And I'm just going to conclude with another clip from The Freshman, the same episode that we saw the start of before, um, where Dan makes a stand at his first college party. And, um, yeah, it's great. What the hell are you doing? Georgina was turning everyone against me. You were just a casualty in the battle for social dominance. But don't worry, your loyalty's been rewarded. Your name's on the list at Monkey Bar. Yours is it. Georgina wasn't turning people against you, Blair. You tried to bribe people into being your friend with sushi parties and gift bags, and nobody liked it. I don't need these losers to like me in order to follow me. Fear works better anyway. Dan. You've experienced social Siberia. If you want to try something new, I'll see you at Monkey Bar. Maybe no, there was a cool crowd at college. Uh, I think you and I are the only ones dumb enough to believe that. Hey, so some of us are wondering if you're going to go to Monkey Bar. You know, just because someone must be on top doesn't mean it has to be black. No, when you get downstairs, you'll find limos waiting to take you to the club. And no sticking your head out the sunroof. This is an East Ridge High School prom. Hello, hey, uh, excuse me, can I get everybody's attention, please? Hey, hi. Hello, I'm Dan. Uh, I just want to let everybody know here that uh, Blair Waldorf over there invited some people from Georgina's past just so she could embarrass her. But, you know, we're, we're all starting college here, and college is supposed to be a place where you're not judged 
by what you believe or the, the friends you make. You're here to make new friends and start over, right? So last time I checked, I mean, I think, I think this this party was pretty fun, right? Yeah. Okay. So, who wants to leave with Blair? All right. And who wants to stay here and drink cheap beer with me? Shall we say, poor B? Our second speaker for this evening is Sage. Dr. Sage Walton teaches in the Screen Studies program at the University of Melbourne and until recently was assistant curator here at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. Sage collaborated on ACME's permanent exhibition Screen Worlds, the story of film, television and digital culture. Her work on genre, aesthetics, embodiment and film and TV history appears in the contemporary comic book Superhero, Playing with Memory, the films of Guy Madden, Lounge Critic, The Couch Theorist Companion, Senses of Cinema, Screening the Past, Art Link and Metro. She's also starred on Sold Out Live in the studio sessions here at Acme, <laughs> Zombie TV and Vampires Buffed and Fanged. Thank you, Sage. When I found this out, this gave me so much joy that Obama had actually mentioned Gossip Girl in one of his kind of press speeches. So I don't know if his um, girls actually watch it or he does. I'd like to think it's the latter, <laughs> but we'll see how we go. So like Obama, I only really became aware of um, Gossip Girl late last year, actually around November. Um, but having been a fan of many TV, teen TV dramas that, that Ryder mentioned throughout the years, and more particularly the OC and um, Veronica Mars. Do people watch Veronica Mars? Yeah. I think I was already predisposed to like it. Um, the fact that Kristen Bell was going to be the, the heard but never seen kind of voice of the blogger um, just gave me chills. And um, I soon became obsessed trying to convert friends, family, students um, to this show, um, needing to own it on DVD. Obviously, I'm successful because some of those friends and students are here tonight. Awesome. Um, and I was quickly joining the ranks of the other fully grown, adult, gainfully employed kind of fans of the show. Um, not the teens and preteen um, girls that this show is primarily marketed towards. Um, and here I'm thinking of things like New York Magazine, which labelled this the greatest teen drama of our time, um, that has a vulture kind of blog recap of every single kind of episode. If you ever want to kill like a hilarious hour, get online and have a look at some of the kind of official and unofficial kind of comments that are posted after each episode goes to air. Um, it is comedy gold. And um, I'll be showing you um, a selection of some of them later. Um, so how have I gone from this? Like, you know, I used to love this show. And, you know, I, I know that maybe not all of you have seen, like, the end of season three here, but I'm, I'm going to be giving stuff away in this talk. I, I can't help it. Um, because now I'm at the point where I want to shoot this show, steal its <laughs> engagement ring, and leave it lying, bleeding in the middle of the street. And I'm quite happy for that to happen. So how has this happened? It, um, is it the dreaded, like, season three kind of TV curse? Um, and we all know that Josh Schwartz is pretty much ends up sabotaging his own masterpieces, um, like with the demise of the OC in season three, and then it's mid-season cancellation in, in season four. So in the hopes of avoiding cancellation for Gossip Girl, I want to interrogate my own um, fandom 
of this show um, and tell you some of the reasons that I like it, um, indeed love Gossip Girl, and not in that kind of um, ridiculously, you know, it's so bad, it's good kind of way that I defend other trash like showgirls. Um, I, you know, consider there's many aspects of Gossip Girl that I think are worthy of critical discussion and still worthy of critical discussion. And hopefully what I can come up with um, towards the end of this um, presentation are some hopes, suggestions and demands for Josh Schwartz and Stephanie Savage that might actually prevent Gossip Girl from dying a slow, slow, painful death if it hasn't kind of done so already. So, where do we start with? Um, the theme of gossip. Now, gossip is the entire premise of this show, both on screen and off, especially as it was kind of, you know, famously launched with its OMFG campaign. You know, the outraged parents and stuff across the states, um, deliberately kind of racy, you know, marketing, etc. So, gossip is the entire premise of its marketing. Um, and of course, all the characters of Gossip Girl are equipped with Blackberries, camera phones, laptops, etc., which enable them to participate in and also disseminate gossip. Um, and I want to show you a key kind of instance of, uh, of this that occurs in season one, when um, Jenny and Blair face off on the Met steps. So, could we get the clip? Thanks. Spotted. Jenny Humphrey waiting in the Met Fountain fishing for change. Blair Waldorf seen dallying with an off-duty doorman at the Blarney Stone on a Monday night. It looks like the battle between the Queen Bee and Little Jay has moved from the streets to the blogs. Who's sending this debasing dish? I have a feeling. A nice shiny dime to add to your collection. <sighs> Want a food cup, Bee? Lost your taste for yogurt? <laughs> so what are we doing tonight? Asher's parents are in camp, so he and Jenny are throwing a party at his house. It's a really small get-together with just our closest friends. Sorry, Blair. Blair can take my place. Invitations are non-transferable. <laughs> She's new to the group. Just because your name is on the invite doesn't make you a hostess. Oh, then why is the party planner calling me? Excuse me, girls. Dad? I was just wondering what time you want me to serve your favorite uncooked meal tonight. Maybe around 8? Oh, um, I have that choir thing. Remember I talked to you about it and you said I could go because I've been good? Oh, right. Well, maybe we could wait to eat till after you got home then. You're going to be hungry after all that singing. Yeah, well, I mean, they have food there and it's probably going to go pretty late. So, um, tomorrow? Okay, love you. Love you too. Sorry, floral emergency. Oh, and you will be happy to know that the entire Unity Lacrosse team are seeing me. <laughs> oh my god, it's Asher. Let's go How did little Jenny Humphrey become the next Brooke Astor? The same way they all do. Mario. Hey, what a long face. Are you still sad mom wouldn't let you go to money from all over the Um, like Rufus would be down with social networking sites, please. The man still uses Bing in season three. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so I like to think of the characters of um, 
how the characters of Gossip Girl use technology and gossip is kind of like a historic con continuation of men and women kind of speaking behind fans at, you know, earlier kind of balls, historic balls. And I'll get back to the show's overt um, play on themes of royalty and absolutism in a bit. But it's interesting that coups and kind of power plays are repeatedly staged throughout the, um, the show. And the suggestion is that through a combination of gossip um, and technology and social networking sites, that those who are disempowered can, in theory, topple the teen royalty. Of course, this really happens because you've got the kind of six main characters, so yeah, they always remain on top. Um, now, this is interesting because um, gossip itself um, is always about power. Um, and as uh, Patricia Spax puts it in her kind of um, book-length study of gossip, people will tend to gossip um, up the social scale rather than down. So the poor and the disenfranchised are rarely the subject of gossip. Um, and gossip will favour certain kinds of information over others. Um, for instance, sex, commerce, um, scandal, cheating, success, failure, social climbing. Um, and we see pretty much all of these get played out across the various seasons of Gossip Girl. And interestingly, gossip, um, gossip is also about distilled information, condensed information. It makes sense of the world by cutting it down to um, a more manageable size. Gossip conveys to us information that we need in a hurry. Um, so the conjunction of gossip and technology works really well in this series, I think. It's literalised in the show as bite-sized chunks of information that are available at your fingertips. So Gossip Girl illustrates the practical value of, of gossip. And in doing so, um, and maybe this is something that we can talk about in Q&A, I think it also questions um, an, an inherent gendering of gossip. I realise it's called go Gossip Girl, but... Um, you know, um, gossip is used by men and women throughout this, sh this show in their kind of struggle for power play. So it does contest the notion that gossip is just, you know, just for women or restricted to old maids, um, little girls and so on. Now here we come to um, another reason that I love this show. In that I think it's pretty much like the absolutist court of Versailles or 18th century France, um, updated and transposed to elite teenagers on the Upper East Side. Um, bear with me here. I don't think it's any coincidence that Blair or Queen Bee likens herself to Marie Antoinette or that the figure of Marie Antoinette decorates um, Blair's bedroom wall. Um, and interestingly, especially in terms of the fashion of, of this show, um, historians have also noted how um, there was no other queen who was more intent on dressing for history than Marie Antoinette and that her life was also a series of costumed events. Now, bearing in mind this kind of 18th century um, absolutist power context, I want to show you two um, clips side by side. One is from the great Dangerous Liaisons, um, John Malkovich, um, Glenn Close, and another is um, a sequence of, I'll play them one after the other, of Queen Bee doing one of her smackdowns <laughs> with assistance. Your damned cousin, the Belange bitch, wanted me away from Madame de Tourvel. Well, now I am, and I intend to make her suffer for it. Your plan to ruin her daughter? Are you making any progress? Is there anything I could do to help? I'm entirely at your disposal. Well, yes. I told Donsony you would act as his confidant and advisor. I need you to stiffen his resolve. If that's the phrase. 
I thought if anyone could help him. Help? He doesn't need help. He needs hindrances. If he has to climb over enough of them, he might inadvertently fall on top of her. <laughs> I take it he hasn't been a great success. Oh, he's been disastrous. Like most intellectuals, he's intensely stupid. I often wonder how you managed to invent yourself. Well, I had no choice, did I? I'm a woman. Women are obliged to be far more skillful than men. You can ruin our reputation and our life with a few well-chosen words. So, of course, I had to invent not only myself, but ways of escape no one has ever thought of before. And I've succeeded because I've always known I was born to dominate your sex and avenge my own. Yes, but what I asked was how. When I came out into society, I was 15. I already knew that the role I was condemned to, namely to keep quiet and do what I was told, gave me the perfect opportunity to listen and observe. Not to what people told me, which naturally was of no interest, but to whatever it was they were trying to hide. I practiced detachment. I learned how to look cheerful while under the table I stuck a fork into the back of my hand. I became a virtuoso of deceit. It wasn't pleasure I was after, it was knowledge. I consulted the strictest moralist to learn how to appear, philosophers to find out what to think, and novelists to see what I could get away with. And in the end, I distilled everything to one wonderfully simple principle. Win or die. It's me, Dan. Um, after you left, Sabrina and I got in a huge fight, and, and she said all this crazy stuff. I honestly don't know what to believe, but, but what I do know is I don't want to see you. So, uh, call me. Excellent work. She's totally calling back. This is so weird. I don't normally do plots against people. Don't worry, Virgin. I'll talk you through it. Right on schedule. Hey. I just got your message. Oh, good, good. So, sorry about this morning with Serena. That was very awkward, to say the least. Yeah, a little bit. Last night, we changed things for me. Serena and I left things kind of uncertain, so... I, I think I want to end it. I know I do. Will you meet me? spot in the park by the pond. See you there. We're turning around. One last battle and the war is won. Humphrey, you are a born liar. Thanks, I think. All that stuff about last night was genius. Anything you want to tell me? Uh, no. Like you said, just born to lie. Honestly, Dan, last night was fun, but I didn't really know what it would all mean to you. Well, I, I normally don't jump into things like that, so, so when I do, it means a lot. Me too. That's why I think we should be together forever. Georgina, look, Serena told me everything. All right, and I believe it. No, you don't understand. She, she was upset and, and jealous. I'm sure she told you all kinds of things to make you think the worst of me. No, just stop it. I never meant for this to happen, but 
It did. And I know you feel it too. I mean, how else do you explain last night? I don't know. I don't know, and I wish I could. So you're just gonna go back to Serena like nothing happened and, and just leave me all alone? Oh, you're not alone, G. I'm here now. And I brought some people who really, really want to see you. I think you remember your parents. The only thing feared by the spawn of Satan? Mom and Dad. Leave it to Blair Waldorf to know that bitches don't just happen. They're made. By parents even more wicked than their offspring. Okay. Um, Mom. Dad, this is not what you think. You have to believe me. There, there, Georgie. It's gonna be okay. Nope. This time, it won't. Or it won't. Your parents were so worried, G. They told me everything. How you're supposed to be on the equestrian circuit, but soldiers show pony for cocaine. That was a difficult time, but I, I put that behind me. When? When you were in rehab? It's hard to get clean when you hitchhike in a town, steal a credit card, and book a ticket to Ibiza. You didn't see where they sent me. And that place was awful. It was, it was in Utah. At least I lasted longer than Lohan. We were trying to help. <laughs> I've had enough. I have to go. Georgina, stop. Yes. Stay, Georgina. I'll go. Oh, that reminds me. I almost forgot to leave you with the information I discussed with your parents. What's this? Where are you going? A boot camp for troubled girls. Blair was kind enough to do some research. Haven't you heard? I'm a crazy bitch around here. Have fun in reform school. Okay. Um, all right, so getting back to kind of the, the um, context of French absolutism and Versailles, um, which was reconstructed in 1669 under the reign of Louis XVI, um, sorry, the, the 14th, um, otherwise known as the Sun King, as the site of royal residence and seat of government. And this site was all about the overt display of power um, and the idea that seeming or appearance is really, um, really is being. And nowhere was the conjunction of reality and appearance more necessary um, than at court. Appearance or visibility was the very essence of court life. Um, it was important to be seen at court, to be noticed by the king. And at Versailles, the cult of appearances was at once a form of power, a source of pleasure, and a genuine means of cultural currency. Being seen or being visible enabled you to rise up the social ladder. Now, this cult of appearances gets enacted again and again in um, Gossip Girl. Um, you have to look like or act like the teen queen of Constance, even if you're not. And here we have two different kind of like reign, reigns of power. Oh, Blair's head's been cut off. Ooh, sorry. Um, and little Jay as the queen below. Um, and you have to be seen at the right places, um, wearing the right outfits and so on. Um, references to royalty, absolutism, court and elitist pleasure abound throughout the series. Um, we've got the kings and queens of the Upper East Side, dark knights and white princes. Um, they go to cotillions, they go to masquerade balls. I love this. <laughs> um, Nate whores himself out to a duchess. Um, there are so many references. There are pointed references to absolutist royalty. Um, and that's entirely appropriate here because this was an era that was renowned for the pursuit of luxury and a rampant culture of, of spending that eventually led to kind of financial ruin under um, Marie Antoinette. Um, so the decadence that typified the French court gets merged with the decadence of the Upper East Side, wealth, coke-addicted parents and so on, and the intrigues of court life become the, um, you know, the intrigues of the teen drama, betrayal, sex, jealousy, etc. So for me, Gossip Girl is yet another continuation of that teen tradition of merging pop culture with a historic 
or literary canon, um, like great literary works. And think of things like 10 Things I Had About You or Clueless. Um, for me, I do see it as a very kind of like modern update of, of Dangerous Liaison when it's working well. Um, that said, I'm giving you lots of intellectual reasons why I like this show. Um, let's, let's, kind of <laughs> let's be perfectly honest about why I like this show. And maybe we should show the, um, the two promo um, uh, clips that the CW put out for season two, if that's okay. I know I'm Sorry, it's bad quality of traditional. Brown doesn't offer degrees in the sun. Google Revenge and get BlairWaldorf.com. Cheating, drinking, drugs, it's all fair game. Not everyone wants to be Blair Waldorf. Gotta be kidding. Don't touch me. I hate you. So you think that one's good? Wait for this. <laughs> can be extended to outside the series as well, especially in terms of how the show gets consumed, um, its online fandom, and the whole Chuck Bass chair phenomenon, as, as in Chuck and Blair. Um, so like... Am I the only person who knows this? Chair! <laughs> so like gossip itself, the show actually circulates outside traditional modes of TV viewing. Um, it's actually got really appalling ratings, like incredibly bad. It only rates like 1.5 million in the States. Um, and Schwartz's other show, Chuck, um, nearly got cancelled by NBC recently and it was getting upwards of 6 million. So this is the first show that I'm aware of that's primarily successful on the net, um, either by streaming online or being downloaded. Um, and it's huge on Apple iTunes. And Josh Schwartz is incredibly good at hyping up um, playing to transmedia branches of fandom. Um, for instance, the show's already um, been adapted from the teen books, as Rada mentioned. It has a Second Life incarnation on the CW site. Schwartz tweets the show on his Twitter account. He and Savage respond to questions online. They make promo appearances at Apple stores in NYC. Um, you get kind of these little nods to fandom um, within the series itself, where these tween girls um, turn up and kind of start to yell at Dan and Serena about their getting their on-again, off-again relationship. Um, and you'll also get the CW, as with those promos, deliberately playing to um, the chair um, 
Chuck Bass phenomenon. So prior to the big like chair breakup that was the you know the big source of controversy in, in season three, they did this whole fashion thing um, in one of the kind of um, fashion stores of the Meatpacking District in New York. It was like, what did Chuck do? Yada yada. And it, you know, um, they shot something specific for it, and they, you know, it featured in this kind of, you know, the dress and the kind of window display also featured in the series itself in that episode. Um, Hilariously enough, um, I think I read one sort of fan comment, which was something like, you know what, Serena picked out that dress for Blair. She should have been aware that anything that Serena picks, um, you're going to be dressing like a whore. Um, <laughs> and this is the episode in which, you know, Chuck whores his girlfriend out. So, Chuck Bass as well as Chair, I promise you I did not do that. <laughs> I promise, I didn't. <laughs> Chuck Bus as well as Cher are perhaps the gathering point for Gossip Girl fandom, with Serena and Nate um, and Serena and Dan running closely behind that. And much uh, like Gossip, the way in which fan culture appropriates Chuck, um, Chuck and Blair and Chuck Bass has taken on a life of its own, like with fan art here, um, or giving rise to um, both slash and het fiction online, or you'll have kind of their, um, their persona spilling out into fashion magazines like this, be still my heart, where they goth it up. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Um, I mean, one question is whether or not the, the fandom that circulates around Chuck Bass is because he's such a kind of um, flamboyant character within the show itself. Um, so, the whole kind of, like, CW trailer for the end of um, season three was... And they literally entitled it Chair Forever. <laughs> um, it's like three minutes of just their relationship... And then there's kind of uh, the fashion shoot with Helena Christensen. And this is, um, the poster is actually taken from Josh Schwartz, um, his, his um, Twitter kind of pictures. And apparently that poster that they were going to release for season two was too raunchy <laughs> for the States because Chuck Bass is borderline pornography, let's face it. Um, so this online presence is great when it's working for you. Um, but when it doesn't, you better watch out, um, particularly in terms of the fans. And there's been a huge chair backlash and anti-Schwartz, anti-Savage response throughout season three. I know, Radha, you love it, but I disagree. And this was partly because fans were unhappy with the direction that the storylines were taking and also because viewers felt like they'd been lied to, um, that certain OMFG hookups, hookups that shall not be named, um, that the producers said would never happen actually occurred. So people felt that, like, Stephanie Savage and um, Josh Schwartz were, were pandering to them online, but they, they were being really deceptive about it. And I just want to, um, because I wasn't such a fan of season three, I became obsessed with, like, tracking the fandom that, that circulates around, um, around this show and particularly how it appears online. And I just want to read you out some of the, the, the um, tweets that were sent to um, Josh Schwartz during um, particular kind of moments in season three. Um, so the first one kind of was in, in the context of the unbearable lightness of being where we actually had Chuck and Blair break up after the pimping incident. Um, so then we had <laughs> one, um, one, one person tweeted, I will love to find myself a limmer and run your ass the fuck over with it. <laughs> In CB's memory, I hate you. Um, another person tweeted to Josh Schwartz, go smack yourself, then smack yourself again, and then go smack the hell out of Savage and give me Ed Westwick's number. Safe <laughs> um, chair, the line was like, um, well done, I guess my scream name is irrelevant. Fuck you and your staff. Um, 
<laughs> these, are, these are the mild ones. I should show you the more, like, you know. Um, Hello, sir, you don't know me, and I actually don't know you, but if you ruin Chuck and Blair, I will go to your house and do really illegal things. I'm not joking. This is not the face of a joking person. Now run along back to your little show and write Chuck and Blair back together. Thank you. Love a caring fan. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, hang on, there's just one, one more. Um, there are pages. There are pages. pages. Come and see me after. You deserve to have a flock of sea bears puke on your lawn after what you just did. Um, two words, oh, and particularly in terms of the finale, in which we had kind of, um, oh, sorry, I'm going to have to give it away, Chuck and Jenny hooking up. He de-virginated Jenny <laughs> as well as Blair. Um, so... <laughs> Um, two words, eight letters, epic fail, you suck, Stephanie sucks, Gossip Girl is dead. Um, <laughs> anyway, I will leave that there. There are, there are just so many. Uh, it, would, it became the kind of joy of my life that after the season three finale, Chuck Bass actually became a Twitter trending topic. <laughs> Worlds are colliding. Okay. So here are my suggestions really quickly for Josh Schwartz, um, Stephanie Savage. And um, down the bottom, I've got... Oh, you might the see the comments. Oh, damn it. Okay, I'll have to read out the demands for you. Um, are some of the comments that appeared on that Vulture blog that I was telling you about that does the, the recap. Okay, so first off, no more snake-like hair extensions. I realise that Taylor Momsen, little Jay, has gone. She's been written off the show for the bulk of next season. Awesome. However, I do not want her um, hair extensions to ever reappear in the show. <laughs> they look like snake tendrils. Right? How Chuck was able to extricate himself from that, I, I have no idea. Okay, um, that's demand number one. Demand number two, can we please bring back the wit and savvy of the anonymous blogger, i.e. Gossip Girl, who used to be so kind of funny and witty and she, then she's just dropped out for the bulk of this season um, and have really bad lines like what you see below here. Um, I know, it's out of control. Um, my third request is that I want Blair to get her bitch absolutist kind of queen back on. Um, where are her minions? She seems to have none. Um, so I'm hoping that her shift to Columbia in season um, four will bring back kind of Blair. Um, I might have skipped ahead here. I, yeah, oops, that should be four, not five. Um, I want more Eric... Please, like his, uh, Eric Vanderwoods, and he's so cute and funny, and he's probably the smartest person on the entire show. In fact, you can get rid of Serena and just give me more Eric. I'm quite happy to have that happen. Um, finally, I just want Dan and Vanessa gone. I don't know about you. <laughs> I would like them permanently shipped off the island. Um, they are the most boring characters I have ever seen. Like, seriously, in season three, we had an episode in which they graded each other's papers. <laughs> so Chuck and Blair are having sex in limos and doing all this wild and kinky sex play, and Dan and Vanessa are sitting around grading each other's papers. Please, like, get rid of them. Um, at this point, the only thing that we can do to save Chuck is, like... Let's just kill his parental issues. I really could not care any more less about his long-lost mummy or daddy issues that took up the bulk of season three and ruined his character. So get rid of that, please. Um, finally, what happened to all his, like, sparkly tuxedos and his, his use of colour and 
like, you know, his, you know, and his penchant for plate, it's all just gone. So um, I would like to see the old Chuck Bass back, at least in a fashion way. And apparently I've read that in season four, Chuck is going to um, suffer amnesia. Apparently because having a stomach wound, like a shotgun wound to the stomach will cause amnesia. <laughs> so he's going to come back with like a new identity and a new I, girlfriend. I think it's sex with Jenny that causes amnesia. <laughs> <laughs> the rat tails. So I'm only hoping that this amnesia will actually trigger something interesting in season three, um, season four. I can only hope that this involves him um, turning up and suddenly appearing to Blair and Serena in jeans. <laughs> Like, so don't disappoint me, show. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Sage. I have to ask before, did you, did you do some rageful tweeting? Did I do some what? Rageful tweeting. I did tweet. Yeah, I've tweeted. I didn't show you mine, but I... <laughs> what, did, what did you tweet? Oh, I, no, I retweeted kind of things of others. Like, because he did this one kind of big one, which was like... Um, when the, the news of the spoiler of the breakup was coming out, he, he, he did something like just a really enigmatic trust and then Chuck and Blair. And then I kind of, um, everyone was tweeting online, world trust, maybe when you give us a reason to. Because we don't like him anymore. <laughs> Our third speaker for the evening is Mel Campbell. Mel is a freelance journalist, blogger and cultural critic. She has a bachelor's degree in advertising and, is, and a master's degree in cultural studies. Her research interests span fashion, media trends, culture and everyday life. Mel is film editor for the Thousand series of Online City Guides, a co-founder of the poster magazine Is Not Magazine and currently runs the online pop culture magazine The Enthusiast. She also maintains a street style research blog Footpath Zeitgeist. Thank you, Mel. Sorry, I'm just going to have to set up my... Well, um, I want to talk about two things. I want to talk about class and I want to talk about fashion. The other two have sort of gestured towards these issues, but uh, I want to talk about them in a little bit more detail. The show takes place in two main locations. We've got the Upper East Side on one hand and then we've got Brooklyn, which I find hilarious the way the show depicts Brooklyn as some kind of wholesome place, um, whereas... It, I find that in um, pop culture at the moment, Brooklyn seems to stand in for cool and for hipness, um, whereas in the show, it's kind of the wholesome place where Rufus makes his famous bolognese and uh, they go for soccer-kicking expeditions to the park. Um, Josh Schwartz has always been interested in the idea of insiders versus outsiders. Um, he himself grew up in Providence, Rhode Island, and his parents were toy inventors. They, um, they made toys and then they went off by themselves. So the, the adult characters in his shows who are creative entrepreneurs, I think, come from this side of his own upbringing. He went to a private school. It was called the Wheeler School. And um, his, he wrote an autobiographical screenplay and a first pilot series called Brookfield that was about wealthy kids in New England. Um, the series was filmed but it never screened. 
Uh, it was after he went to USC, just like Dawson does in uh, Dawson's Creek, that um, Schwartz realised what it was like to be an outsider because he was a real New England boy and here he is uh, among all the people of uh, Orange County. And so he turned that experience into the OC and based, of course, the Cohen family on his own Jewish upbringing. And in both the OC and in Gossip Girl, he's created a protagonist who acts as our eyes into this closed world, this world that's not uh, readily available to outsiders. So as Ryan is in the OC, that's what Dan Humphrey plays in... Uh, in Gossip Girl, and just like the OC, kind of drifted away from Ryan because he was boring. Um, so Dan has become less and less interesting in Gossip Girl as the show has focused on Chuck and Blair, as Sage has amply <laughs> ranted about. Um, but I find it interesting the way that the show has tried to create all sorts of um, convoluted plot twists whereby people will switch between being in Brooklyn where the um, Rufus's gallery and the associated coffee shop seems to be the hub as is the loft where the Humphreys live and then uh, the Upper East Side complex of the school and the various houses where they all um, live and it, it becomes even more ridiculous once you bring in um, characters like Vanessa, who is of Brooklyn. She, she only ever appears at school in an awkward capacity, like handing out flyers for her, um, you know, save this historic building kind of thing. Um, or, oh, I'm, I just happen to be walking down the street, you know, a very long subway ride away from where <laughs> I live and work. And um, I find it really fascinating that it, it really wants to have its, uh, its uh, both ways. Um, and throughout the series, it is the, the less moneyed characters, the, your Dans, your Humphreys um, and Vanessa, who act as the show's moral compass because uh, the people who live on the Upper East Side are presented as being completely amoral um, and it seems like the more money they have, the worse they get, with Chuck being the absolute devil himself. Um, and later on, as uh, uh, Nate loses all his family money he discovers a moral side that he never had in the first season. And, and that's why he, he becomes friends with Dan at the same time. So it's, it's like lack of money clumping together, really. And, um, and Rufus always has to run around town being the naysayer to his two children and, and telling them that they're losing touch with their roots and that um, he'll make them a bolognese, you know, if they get home. Sometimes it's a chilli, but it's waffles. always... Yeah, oh, and waffles. Yeah. Um, so I find it fascinating that the, th the show uses um, class as, as a, a kind of stand-in for morality. Um, I find it also really fascinating the way the show deals with, um, with servants. Um, Dorota is almost presented as like a jolly sort of um, pet for Blair. Um, and the way that she, she is like the kind of... She, her facial repertoire is hilarious in the show. She basically just goes... A lot of the time, and oh, Miss Blair, you know, and um, and that episode where she is is kind of put up in the bet with Chuck against Chuck's limousine. I find it fascinating that a person would um, have that same role as a car, uh, and in other scenes like um, in the Bass um, combined household when Lily weds Bart. There are always these servants roaming around in the background, uh, all these flunkies of various sorts. Lily's got her art dealer, Bart's got his shady private investigator, and they seem to just be ignored by the family when the family are having their private discussions. You can sort of see people wandering around in the background of the, the shots, and I find it fascinating that um, 
there's still a servant class and that the show does not interrogate that at all, that it kind of takes that for granted. But there are a lot of class-based things that the show takes for granted. Um, class is also a sartorial sense, and here's where I start getting into the fashion. Um, unlike, say, Sex and the City, um, Gossip Girl doesn't fetishise its designer clothes, even though all the characters wear fabulous outfits by... Yeah, you know, Balenciaga or Alexander McQueen, Marc Jacobs, and they have very expensive accessories and shoes, all the whole thing. But they don't crow about them in the way that Carrie and her pals do um, in Sex and the City, and they, they're not constantly hunting for clothes and for accessories, even though they're sometimes referred to jokingly or in passing in the, season, in the series. In, they're just basically taken for granted, much as the servants are, as just a part of this world and something that you have. Uh, just by normal. And, and so we can see that there's um, drama in the show when uh, Jenny is trying to social climb. She's trying to match the consumerism of uh, Blair and her gang. And she gets herself into a terrible hole. Um, she just can't keep up with their fancy lunches, um, with all the clothes that she's expected to buy. In the very first episode, I think, or maybe it was the second episode of the first season, you see Jenny going to Saks or some other fancy shop and she's looking at the dresses and then she'll go home and make her own version of them. Uh, but you can see that she's really struggling um, by the time she's hooked up with that absurd Asher character um, <laughs> as his beard. Um, so... <laughs> We'll, uh, we'll now show a, a clip from season one, episode 14, The Blair Bitch Project. The, the pun titles of this show are also really excruciating, um, which is when uh, Jenny has finally been busted for stealing a designer frock from uh, one of her would-be friends uh, and uh, Blair has cruelly thrown her this absurd pink-themed Sweet Sixteenth... No, is it Sweet Sixteenth? Yeah. Birthday party at the loft that poor... Rufus has just gone along with because he just doesn't know any better. So, um, can we have the clip now, please? Blair said they told you the original party had fallen through so that they could surprise you with a better one. Blair's a liar. He got played. She also said that you were afraid the girls wouldn't accept everything about you. She knew you were wrong. She wanted you to feel like you had nothing to be ashamed of. Was that a lie, too? Where did you get the dress? And I know you didn't make it because your sewing machine is gone. You have no idea how hard it is, Dad. I sold my sewing machine, okay? What? Yeah, and a lamp and some jewelry. Why? Because I had to. Dad, you think that you could just send me off to school with a plaid skirt and a metro guard and everything will be okay? I am not apologizing for not having a private plan for you, Jenny. You think I'm ashamed of where I come from? No, Dad, what I'm ashamed of is having to bring a brown bag lunch to school and, you know, eat it in the bathroom and then go out with my friends and pretend that I'm not hungry when I go to lunch with them. You don't have to do those things, Jenny. You're making a choice. What don't you get? Do you want me to choose to have no friends? Well, clearly, I mean, that's not even a choice anymore because that's just done. Jenny has the most wonderful tantrums. Now, no one can tantrum quite like Jenny. 
Um, but Dan also has his own troubles trying to fit in. Um, when uh, Serena's grandmother, um, Cece, is that her name? Um, tries to push him out, um, saying that she's, uh, Serena is, is too good for him, um, but he somehow wins her over because she's overcome breast cancer now. Um, did, have you guys seen that episode, the, the Hamptons one, where um, having been in remission, she miraculously lends her dead husband's white uh, Tom Wolfe suit to, to Dan so that he can go to the white party. And, and then you can see her nodding wisely, yes, Dan, you're welcome in my family now, when she hated him for the whole first season. Um, but the, the funny thing with um, getting back to Jenny, the funny thing about Jenny is that... Uh, while she struggles so hard with the authentic fashion in season one, by season two, now that she has her own fashion label and her own sort of sense of style, the queen bees are coming to her um, to get their original garments made. Um, so let's, let's talk a bit about the kind of... Um, the industry of fashion, the way it appears. Oh, before we do, I've got this image up here of... Um, the kids uh, and school. I think this was a promo pic for the first season, which I've, I've knitted together quite poorly. You can see how their school uniform is barely a uniform at all. There seems to be a general agreement that if you're a bloke, you'll wear a sort of yellowish shirt and some sort of chino pants. And if you're a chick, you'll wear a pale coloured top and a navy skirt. But it, they rarely wear the actual skirt that goes with the uniform. Um, Serena has decided to wear this... Uh, tie, that's, that's her look that she always wears to school. Sometimes she'll just wear a t-shirt underneath and not even a school shirt. Um, and then the, the tie or the little um, Girl Scout type tie that um, Blair's wearing in that picture seems to be the go. And then they'll, they'll jazz it up with wearing um, different jackets, different uh, shoes, different stockings, the whole thing. And you can see the way that Chuck uh, is wearing his own kind of pants and he'll sometimes wear a shirt that has the same tone as the official school shirt but is uh, his own, you know, slightly dandyish thing. I'll get to the various fashion senses. But before I did, I wanted to talk about the way that um, fashion operates as an industry within um, Gossip Girl. You can see that with Eleanor Waldoff and also with um, Jenny's struggles to be seen as a kind of alternative um, fashion designer. Um, Eleanor, as a character, reminds me of those high society American designers, um, people like Betsy Johnston and Diane von Furstenberg. That's Betsy Johnston there. Um, she was a kind of factory girl in the 60s, in the youth quake, and um, she's sort of been a, an alt figure but she's been incorporated back into mainstream fashion. I also think it's interesting the way that this dress that she's wearing in that picture is strikingly similar to the, the dress that Jenny makes for, um, for Serena, well she makes it for herself, but uh, that Serena ends up wearing in the Eleanor Waldorf fashion parade. And the way that um, these, real, these real fashion designers are also society ladies and uh, their daughters also end up being involved in society in the same way that Blair is involved in her mother's business and is, is helping her along the way. So um, Betsy Johnson's daughter, Lulu, now works as her mother's creative director. Um, that's them in 2008 um, with her, her granddaughter. It's the third generation. And um, even Anna Winter's daughter, Catherine Schaffer, who's known as B, um, is involved in the industry, despite claiming that she wouldn't be in, uh, if you've seen um, the September issue. Um, she wrote an occasional fashion column for Britain's Daily Telegraph newspaper. Um, now, let me have a, a bit of a... I'll go through some of the characters in turn and we'll see how the, the show very deliberately uses the clothes, the costumes that they wear, to delineate their characters. 
So first, Serena, she's the boho. She's your Kate Moss, your Sienna Miller character. Um, she always looks kind of messy, scruffy, a little bit underdressed for wherever she's going, and yet she always seems to be perfectly put together. She's the girl who just throws an outfit together. You can see the picture in the top left is from that episode, the flashback from um, Thanksgiving, where she was wild and, uh, and she went out and got drunk. And, uh, and so that's a, slightly, um, that's a slightly slutty Serena of old. And then you can see the, the more sort of classical Serena in the other images. Um, now, Chuck is... Um, Sage was lamenting the lack of, of bright colours. Um, Chuck's outfits are fabulous. I think he's one of the best-dressed characters. Uh, lots of bow ties, cravats, waistcoats, pocket squares, and lots of bright and pastel colours that aren't generally seen as very masculine. So lots of pinks and purples and apricots and... Uh, and uh, another thing I'd like to mention is that Chuck and Blair's outfits often echo the colours to suggest that they belong together. And this is something that is done also with um, Dan and Rufus to show that they are sort of of the same family. But I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. Um, so Blair is your Upper East Side princess and her headband is her crown. We were talking about um, royalty and it's, it's literally a, a kind of royalty for her and that's the signature of her gang at school. Um, she wears lots of tailored things with lots of luxurious fabrics like satin and cashmere. It's weird because you'd think that she looks a little, she dresses a little old for how old she is. She's just meant to be 17, 18. But there's always something a little bit, um, something, a, a bit of a twist that makes her look young still. I love that outfit that she wore to the, um, the Deb Ball. That's it on the far right. I think that's one of the, the Serena's outfit was rubbish for the same <laughs> event. Um, now, Jenny is a really interesting um, character as well because her clothes evolve to show her various social statuses. So the one on the far left is from the, the white party. That's the, the frock she makes herself and that draws the attention of Tinsley Mortimer, the awful socialite. Um, in the middle, you can see her kind of punk phase with the really heavy eye makeup and the shiny tights that were very in at the time. Then there's the, um, the episode that we actually saw earlier before the, the bit with um, her having the power play with Blair. That's the most Blair-like she gets. When she's trying to usurp Blair's position, she dresses more preppy and she wears those kind of same uh, colours that Blair does. And then on the far right, the, um, the awful kind of hair extensions. <laughs> the less said about that, the better, really. Um, now, Dan is, a, is meant to be a bohemian writerly type, so he wears lots of soft fabrics, lots of earthy tones and he seems to have the same garments coming back again and again. He never seems to have his wardrobe turn over very much and this is because he's poor. <laughs> um, so he always has that, that brown messenger bag. He loves it and he, he wears the same kind of khaki jacket most of the time over his school uniform. Uh, you can see he loves the blue jeans and he, when he gets dressed up he will just put a shirt and uh, put a vest over the top with maybe a little skinny tie because he's a little bit Brooklyn, they wear skinny ties there. Um, and even when Dan tries to dress up it's always a little bit pathetic, like he never quite hits the mark and um, there's an adorable moment um, just before the, uh, what was the ball called, the snow... Snowflake, Snowflake ball, where he's excited, he's on the phone to Serena saying, did you know that when you hire a tux in Brooklyn you get the shoes for free? <laughs> Which is adorable. Um, now Nate is the, the old money guy and so uh, I was watching one of the special features on the first season DVD where um, the costume designers were explaining that 
with Nate, they were thinking that his mum bought his clothes for him. He really doesn't care that much about fashion. And so they're very old school uh, Americana, real Ivy League stuff, lots of Brooks Brothers. Um, and uh, so he wears lots of very conservative looking clothes, but he looks as though he doesn't care for them very much. He just kind of throws them on the ground. Indeed, that episode where Dan discovers that um, Nate has basically been squatting in his own house, um, he says that all he, uh, Nate had was a sleeping bag and some Brooks Brothers shirts just to tide him over. But you can see, see that photo um, of Nate at the gala with Jenny. Look at the beautiful tailoring of that jacket. The other thing about Nate is that all his clothes are, are beautifully made and beautifully designed and they fit him perfectly. And now Vanessa, she also has a hippie thing going on, but she's a lot more cheap and cheerful than Serena. Lots of oranges, lots of yellows and acid greens. And for some reason, she also just wears so much blusher. It's absurd. She has this weird skin colour that doesn't exist in nature. <laughs> it, she looks a lot better, actually, in those photos than she does when you're actually watching the show. Um, that big photo in the middle of her has her hip-hop earrings that she wore throughout most of season one to show that she was from Brooklyn. <laughs> and, and her kind of... Um, you see her streetwear-influenced stuff. But... Uh, as the, the, the series goes on and she gets a more and more prominent role, she, um, she gets much more groomed. Her hair looks a lot nicer. It looks awful throughout most of um, season one, but by season two, and then by season three, it looks as though there's just grease going all the way through it. And finally, we've got Rufus. Now, I really wanted to find lots of pictures of Rufus's awful collection of cowboy-style Ryan Adams shirts. Um, but I just couldn't really find that many. Although that, that one on the far right is my favourite. That's got the little, the little rosebuds on. Uh, Rufus loves to wear his uh, leather jacket and his awful thong around the neck to show that he's not only uh, kind of alternative, but he's old and he's meant to be daggy within the scheme of the show. And um, you notice that the, the kind of colour scheme that he uses is very similar to the colour scheme that Dan has. Uh, to show the connection between them. Okay, now let me talk about the Chuck Bass scarf. Um, <laughs> this scarf, they, they thought that Chuck needed to have a signature accessory and they found it from J Press, which is a high-end menswear retailer in the US, but a really old-school one, sort of like um, Henry Buck menswear or something here. And uh, it's known as a silk patchwork scarf, according to them, and it's made from the offcuts of the ties that they also make. And uh, they just randomly found it in a pile of scarves and they thought, wow, that's it, that's the Chuck Bass scarf. And it sold for $175 US before the show started, but now it costs $250. That's when it's in stock. Because, of course, <laughs> fans of the show just went and bought them out. You can also find guides to how to make your own Chuck Bass scarf. <laughs> you can buy rip-off Chuck Bass scarves on eBay. I think they cost about $150, US, which is relatively cheap, considering that a real one will set you back $250. So this is an example of the way that fashion on Gossip Girl spills over into the real world. Um, it's not enough just to watch the show. You've got to identify with the particular characters and emulate their style. And there are so many blogs that will allow you to do that, to sort of um, pinpoint the various designers and uh, where you can get a similar look. Uh, and it's, it's fascinating stuff. They, they actually do this for heaps of shows, not just Gossip Girl, but because fashion is such a huge part of Gossip Girl, they do. Um, now I want to talk about the Big W diffusion line. 
Um, which is by a celebrity stylist that I've never heard of before, so clearly I'm not that into fashion, um, called Kai Ayub, and it was launched in November last year. And uh, it's absurd. It's, it's marketed to teens to women in their late 30s, so pretty much <laughs> anyone. And, and uh, the, uh, the designer says they can emulate the styles of these trust fund babies and Brooklyn maybes, but at a fraction of the price. I mean, it... <laughs> It is a fraction of the price because uh, you can buy a pair of earrings, like I suppose Vanessa-style earrings, for 10 bucks, or you can buy a dress for 50 bucks or 49.83. I don't know where they got that thing from. Um, and Ayub said, My inspiration for this collection were the three muses of Gossip Girl, Blair, Serena and Jenny. Blair's flair for the dramatic, Serena's urban boho chic and Jenny's preppy meets punk. Then I thought, how would these three style icons actually style themselves if they were transported here for an Australian summer? The end result is Gossip Girl, the TV series collections Kai Ayub, which is actually the official name of it. Gossip Girl, the TV series collections Kai Ayub. Um, and the absurdity is that Big W is an absolute bargain basement store, so it's not just like they're being sold at my or even Kmart. Big W, it's, it's, you know, where I go to get my flannies, my Rufus-style flannies and my, my cheap, you know, canvas shoes... Um, let's have a look. I went in there yesterday to see what they had. Um, so here we have the, a kind of Serena-like um, garment. I suppose you would call it a gilet or something. Um, that's, I suppose, a Jenny-style skirt. There was, actually a, there was actually a nicer skirt that had sequins all over. I think that was meant to be a blurry kind of a skirt. But um, my photo of that didn't come out very well. Um, that's a dress that I think is meant to be a bit of a Blair dress or perhaps a Jenny. Um, I, they don't photograph very well. I mean, it's interesting because... Um, <laughs> I should have got some of the photos that um, they have uh, on the Big W website where they actually have models who resemble the actors modelling the dresses. And they look a bit more plausible there than they do here. I've deliberately highlighted how sad it is to go into Big W and see these, these garments. And look at that one. Isn't it beautiful? But the thing is, I mean, you could probably rock them. And the thing is that they are actually a lot nicer than the other stuff that is sold at Big W. It's noticeably better. Um, so, basically, that's just another example of the way that um, Gossip Girl spills out of the actual show itself. And um, it's a nice way, I guess, to wrap up the issues of class as well because um, someone who would never, ever be able to wear such a garment to one of Blair's um, parties or even just walking past her on the street can, can somehow feel as though they're part of the um, Gossip Girl universe with these garments. So, that's all. Um, I'm interested, you guys, in how you feel about the reality TV spin-offs because while I love Gossip Girl OC, I don't think there's a reality spin-off of Veronica Mars. If there was, that would be great. But I've never managed to get into the hills or whatever the New York preppy version is. The city. Um, I just wonder what you guys thought about the uh, reality TV versions. I think you should answer this because you were interviewed about this just the other day. Yeah, uh, I, I really like the hills. Um, I think that 
it, its dialogue is almost as sparkling as season two of Gossip Girl. Um, the, one of the highlights of The Hills is when they discuss the um, Large Hydron Collider. Um, that, that's a really good bit. Um, I, I think it's a great show. I don't see a lot of connections between um, those reality shows and these ones. I think there are a whole raft of those kind of reality shows and some of them have connections but they're not, um, they're not as strong as kind of the, the um, generic connections to other teen TV shows, teen TV dramas. I think the reality shows um, are their own kind of thing. Um, but there are connections, for example, The Real Housewives of the OC obviously has some connections to the OC. There's a lot of Real Housewives of, um, of you know, that show these kind of women in New York as well. But they also have them for, like, Atlanta and stuff. So it's not just springboarding off these, um, these shows. And um, I was going to say something else. And, then, and they also relate to... Um, just completely different kind of social scenarios like Jersey Shore, you know? Don't they diss it at one point in Gossip Yeah. Like, um, drunk Serena, like, yeah. passes out and falls asleep watching The Hills with Georgina. Yeah. Bring back drunk, debauched Serena. I miss <laughs> that girl. <laughs> um, so I think one of the... I think actually one of the greatest things that they have in common, um, the shows like Gossip Girl and The OC and these kind of reality shows is actually the audience. I think that they are quite different kinds of shows, but they appeal to a crossover kind of audience and people like to watch both. I like to watch both, but, you know, I like to watch lots of things, so, you know. Um, and, um, and I think that, um, that there are connections to all sorts of other shows. You know, I w was dying to mention Gilmore Girls with the, you know, everybody wanting to go to Yale and all that kind of stuff. There are a lot of connections to a lot of other current shows. Anyway. I also wanted to mention that when Mel said that she saw um, Eleanor like Betsy Johnson, I saw Eleanor as like Stephanie from Bold and the Beautiful. <laughs> Well, well, one of the things I was going to mention, but that there wasn't time, was that uh, there was a whole other category that I call avoiding college. And one of the main ways for teen shows to avoid college is like Freaks and Geeks and um, My So-Called Life and well, is to get cancelled. <laughs> you get cancelled, you avoid college. The other major and reasonably successful teen show... Um, that avoided the transition was Felicity because it started at the start of college. Um, so it just completely avoided that transition. But that is a much more creative way of avoiding the transition. And to me, just kind of reinforces how scared they are of that change. Oh, my God, what are we going to do? What, that This is when it could all go down the gurgler. Let's just skip that bit. But they did 
they also kind of ignore it as well. Like Nate apparently goes to Columbia. I don't know if anyone's ever seen him go to class. Like, but you know. the thing is, they never go to class. But no one, <laughs> no one goes to class at NYU anyway. So. No, no one goes to no class. Yeah. Constance. Yeah. Chuck just <laughs> continues on like yeah. as Chuck. Yeah. Know, it's kind of like avoiding it that way. Yeah. yeah. I'm a little bit curious to know. I personally didn't watch teen dramas when I was a teen. I thought Dawson was a bit creepy because he was like 25 when we were, <laughs> I don't know how old. Who actually watched teen dramas at the uh, appropriate teen? You're on your own, huh? Oh, that's, that's, re that's really nice. Thank you. Wasn't like Perry like in his 40s? Yeah. And Andrea was, was even older. Yeah. Like you could see her visibly yeah, aging yeah. Like as the show kind of progressed. She had a stroke. <laughs> yeah. Also, I'm not laughing at not, her. Not while she was on um, Beverly Hills, but later on she got hit in the head with a prop bullet during a, a gunshot scene. And she had a stroke and half her face dropped. And I should have laughed. Me laugh as well. up on that. I mean, I guess Luke Perry looked a bit old, but I was a teenager watching Beverly Hills and, I, you know, I really identified with all their problems and, and stuff and, like that. And I always took it as it's much better to get adults who can act a little bit to play teenagers than to get actual teenagers like they do in Neighbours who are of <laughs> the... Who are it. of the just deliver the line and try not to run into the furniture school of acting. You know, I think it's much better to have somebody who's maybe not exactly the right age. Interestingly, like, Taylor Mobson, who plays Jenny, is actually 16, and I think that's yeah. why she is so freaking annoying. Like, you know, there is just no distinction between Taylor Mobson and little Jay. They're both unannoying and rude. Um, something that I find, like, a phenomenon that's a bit interesting is the, um, the girls going skank. So like Brittany and Christina and they're sort of like sexualized at a at a really young age and they're this like precious sort of sugar sweet sexual object and then sort of to grow up they sort of have to become skanky and so they get their darker eyeliner out and mess up their hair and all that sort of thing like Lindsay Lohan and stuff like that. So I just in terms of fashion I just wanted to hear what you thought about um, Jenny and her sort of skank period. <laughs> There's just so much that could be said on that. And please, like, if I don't answer the question sufficiently, get onto that Vulture kind of website I was telling you about. Jenny's kind of clothes and her hair are pretty much, they're like mood ring. It's like a mood ring, okay? When she's in good Jenny mode, like, she, she dresses like you were saying, like Blair, and her hair's all kind mm. of, like, nice and neat. Um, when she gets her bad on, out come the kind of, the raccoon eyes, like, you know, the, 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 the punk kind of hair. And to the point where, you know, by season three, you know, she's, and, and Josh Schwartz was even tweeting this, oh, you know, gosh, little Jay, you've gone so dark, like, on his, like, Twitter account. <laughs> <laughs> so, I was, like, waiting, like, eagle. this is, like, you know, while they were shooting the kind of last episode, so suddenly she comes back, like, in, in the second kind of half of the, you know, conclusion of season three, um, she's trying to lose her virginity to pretty much anyone who will take it. Um, <laughs> she becomes a drug dealer. She literally starts trading in drugs so that she can be, like, the queen of Constance. Um, and that's when her hair starts to get totally out of control and the makeup becomes like... And then, you know, finally she hits rock bottom in the, um, 
in the season finale when she, she, you know, her and Chuck sleep together, and then she goes through this insane, like, so, so she actually like losing her virginity is a really traumatic thing. Like she, she recognizes that it's a, it's a, it's a huge mistake, and they do set up in the, in, in terms of a thematic parallel where, whereas Chuck and Blair was like, you know, fun and gorgeous and kind of like, you know, um, that this is a really kind of traumatic moment for them both, and they're both like visibly dark, like she's crying, it's all raccoon kind of makeup down, like props to, to Taylor Monson in that scene, she, she totally nails it. So, and, and Chuck in, in, in the finale looks positively reptilian, probably because he's so disgusted at the prospect of potentially sleeping with, with Jenny. But, <laughs> so yeah, I do think that they do code her hair and her kind of like, as skank when she's in her kind of darker, darker moral moments. Yeah, I mean, and, I think that just in general, um, Gossip Girl is interesting because Jenny is kind of the only person who undergoes that um, transformation. Even when Serena was in her slut phase, she still kind of looked pretty good. <laughs> and um, it was just kind of coated with her wearing leopard skin. You know, watch out. Um, and uh, Although they do have this thing with eyeliner, the darker the eyeliner, sort of the more evil and twisted the character, and which is taken to ludicrous extremes with Jenny. Um, but I think that Blair sort of maintains, even though she does evil things, maintains a very ladylike appearance throughout the whole thing. And even when she's like trying to you know, slut up and seduce Chuck or whatever, she still wears lovely lingerie and puts some candles on, you know, rather than um, these... Even, even that scene where she kind of does that pathetic burlesque thing in Chuck's burlesque club. Oh, it's so not pathetic. It is, because, like, it's, it's coy. Uh, in, yeah, whereas you can see, if Jenny were in that situation, she'd, she'd nude up straight away, you know? Like, she, <laughs> like she did a, a terrible party with, the, with that skeezy photographer. But there, there, oh. is a, um, there is quite a tradition in teen dramas of this idea of trying on different identities and... Um, and that you can dress up for certain events, mm. and the formal event of the week kind of plays on that as well, that you kind of dress up and see who you want to be and become who you want for a bit and just try it out, and it's sort of that kind of stuff about finding who you are. Let's just try it on, mm. and um, that's what we can all go and do at Big W ourselves now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like um, my of the evening when I can do a really horrendous segue and my segue is trying on new identities. So our competition for the evening is uh, going to be judged by the panel here. Who can do the best I'm Chuck Bass? <laughs> it's not going to be me. <laughs> we might have to do it ourselves. I oh, know. No. 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 <laughs> It's like sacred. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, uh, the, the prize is um, ticket, a double, double pass to the next live in the studio session, which is uh, at the, the last Thursday in July, which is sci-fi spin-offs. Do we have a Chuck Bass? I'll give you some tips. I've noticed um, <laughs> Chuck Bass, he doesn't talk in a, a loud voice very he often. Whispers. He whispers and he does English. <laughs> I found it so bizarre um, to learn that uh, Ed Westwick actually is British mm. and to hear him speak in his normal voice was like an alien mm. um, or like a puppet, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like the real Chuck Bass but, and, um, and he has long pauses between some words and then he'll speak, speed up and then he'll have long words 
on pauses and then he'll speed up a bit. Do you know, as a site, I find this hilarious because he's become like, you know, the, the ultimate kind of fan base of the show. But apparently when he went into casting, like Josh Schwartz and Steph Savage like totally fell in love with him and he originally kind of auditioned for the role of Nate, you know, his British and stuff. Um, but they kind of saw him as, as being something darker and apparently, like when he, um, they wanted to hire him and the producers of the show were like, you can't do that, he looks like a serial killer. Like, <laughs> Okay, I'm just going to change the topic since yeah. no one's doing this. Right. To I, I wanted to pick up on what you said about the servant class. Oh, yeah. Have you seen the webisodes? No. I didn't think so. Has anyone seen the webisodes? Mm. What happens in the webisodes, Rada? There's a whole series of Dorota webisodes. There's like ten of them, and they're an extra on some of the DVDs. And Dorota sits around in the lounge room with the nannies and the servants from the other families in the building that we don't even see. And they all sit around and drink the alcohol of their masters. This is fantastic. And, I see a spin-off. And bitch about the families. And that's how she got together with Vanya. Oh. You know, there, there's this oh, whole... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so there is this whole... It, it, it's totally about the underclass. And, then, and it's all kinds of servants. It's nannies and cooks and all sorts of stuff, butlers, yes. Um, so it's all about the underclass. It's, um, it's a little bit um, upstairs, downstairs with upstairs. I love upstairs, downstairs. Mm. Yeah. Do you have a final question for the audience before we finish up for the evening? Anything you'd like to know? Either way, back and forward. Uh, I wanted to put in my personal demand for, um, since Sage got to list seven or eight demands for, <laughs> Sorry, yeah, um, for season four, my demand is more Cyrus. I love Cyrus. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I've heard in the books that, um, that Dan um, ends up to be bi. and no, he, he gets bi in the books. Oh, is it Chuck? I heard that some of them <laughs> get it on. And I True. thought and I think that would be interesting. We, yeah. we already had kind of Chuck kissing boys in this season. Can we just turn him gay? Like, it's, it's going to be so much more interesting. Like, and that's pretty much the only kind of thing that they can do now. Like, it's pretty much ab everyone has slept with everyone. The well, second bring, bring Dan Eric and in. Blair get together, I'm calling it, this show has jumped the shark. <laughs> if not already. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you to Rada and Sage and Mel. Uh, for an excellent panel, and to Yuval and Simon up in the bio box. And thank you to you, the audience. Thank you.